0: Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagen. Solo today without my co-host Emily Jane Fox. But not solo because I have a lovely guest here. Shira Frankel. Shira, hi. Hi. She is a reporter for the New York Times. She and her co-author Cecilia Kong wrote an amazing book called An Ugly Truth. Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination. And when we say domination, we don't mean just over Google basically over the earth. I mean, this is like a really damning account of the history, corporate intrigue, and the motivations of its founder, Mark Zuckerberg. The New York Times, the paper that they are both employed by, called it The Ultimate Takedown. <laughs> uh, so it's a pretty uh, heavy-duty book, and it's based, I read in the book, on 15 years of reporting. Now I was thinking, is that in aggregate between the two of you, or is that both like literally the timeline of years that you guys have worked on this, uh, on this beat.
1: (laughs) That is an aggregate. Um, Cecilia Kong, my co-author, has done this for much longer than I have. She's been based in Washington for over a decade doing tech policy. Um, I'm newer to this beat. I started reporting on tech really in, in 2015.
0: Well, since then, some of the most profound and alarming News events around Facebook have occurred. So you've been front row seat, eyewitness, and a deep diving reporter on everything from the Russia kind of interference in the election through using Facebook to, you know, the January 6 events and how those factored in, how Facebook factored into those things. Before we get started here, because the book is like in-depth and takes you really into the boardroom with Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg and all the top executives as they make these incredibly critical decisions. But, you know, I've read a lot of business books and you read them about, you know, the the gun manufacturing industry, you know, Rocketry or RJR Nabisco. And these are places that you've know these companies and you might be interested in business. But it's very rare that a book comes along that is about a company that affects you so directly. I mean, down to you have children of your little baby and your most emotional thoughts that you've put on Facebook. Every single dumb little item that you secretly desire to purchase, they know about because you liked it or you just scrolled over it for like five seconds longer than usual. And they are a data-consuming vacuum cleaner who has a, you know, I'm just like a Death Star-like algorithm at the center of it that is, you know... Practically determining the fate of our politics and our culture and the way they are able to manage information and misinformation. And that's why we're here today to talk to you about this, because I'm on Facebook. You know, you're on Facebook, too, I imagine, right? You to you would have to. I be. am. <laughs> yeah.
1: I am. Yeah. As, as you said, as a reporter, I have to be. But to be honest, it's also because it's a good product for connecting people. And that's yeah. something that we knew when we went into reporting this book, is that There were going to be people who read it who were still saying at the end of it, you know, but Facebook is fun. It's how I talk to my friends.
0: That's right. So and so the point of all that is that what happens in the boardrooms does affect you 100% directly and not only just the boardroom, but the the founder and the head of it, Mark Zuckerberg, who is the sort of de facto dictator of this company, right? There is a board who advises him, but it's like in the corporate language that whatever he says goes, isn't that right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And one thing we wanted to show in this book was that pattern of behavior of Mark kind of being the ultimate decider on these things. And how so many things fall on just down to, well, what does Mark think? What's the opinion of one man in these hugely consequential moments?
0: Right. And so what we want is both a profile of this guy's, you know, motivations, his worldview, because all those things are affecting us. And we're seeing that there are all these potential ways in which he might have been checked or which a different route that the company might have gone in terms of how it manages your data and manages politics and everything else. But none of those, a lot of those got steamrolled over. And some of them probably spoke to you for this book because, (laughs) you know, I mean, a lot of people were probably saying, hey, this, it didn't have to be this way. But uh, so let's just, start at the top, the title, An Ugly Truth. Mm -hmm. That title comes from something specific. Maybe you can tell us what that title comes from and what's the origin of it.
1: Yeah, we chose that title because it comes from an internal Facebook memo. We have in our book, we show Boz, one of Facebook's longest serving executives, writing this memo to his own employees called The Ugly. And he says very bluntly, you know, Facebook wants to continue on our mission, which is to make the world more open and connected. We all agree. He kind of assumes this. We all agree that that's what we should be doing as a company. We are going to end up with some people hurt along the way. And that's just something that we have to accept as a company. And I think, you know, both Cecilia and I read that memo and just thought like that kind of spells it out, you know, Mm -hmm. that Facebook's executives, know what this risk is. They know what the calculation is. And yet they have decided that they need to continue growing. They want to continue growing as a company.
0: Right. And so, you know, and the implications are, they're chilling. I mean, it's uh, this executive, Andrew Bosworth, Bos, as you mentioned, you know, the, the idea is Facebook could be the vehicle for you know, mass death somewhere in the world, you know, like Myanmar, which we you guys outlined. I didn't know much about that until I looked at your book, which, um, you know, Facebook became kind of a vehicle for a genocide there. Right. And, And what Bosworth is saying in here is that, you know, No matter what is happening, as long as we're growing and engaging with an audience, it's de facto good for us. That's the cost-benefit analysis, and it's just as cold and libertarian as you could possibly get. Um, Right. And, uh, you know, that's why, and that's the context around when Biden the other day said Facebook is killing people and it caused a big stir, right? He's talking about there's still misinformation out there about vaccinations, and a lot of it spread on Facebook, and Facebook... Have they done something about it? Is that fair, what he said? Well,
1: yeah. I mean, I think Facebook has certainly taken some action to stop anti-vaccine content from spreading on their platform. That's something that we know Mark Zuckerberg thought was very important at the start of the pandemic. And so, yes, they made sure that the average person could not spread anti-vaccine, explicitly anti-vaccine content. but. You know, as we've documented, they have allowed other people, including former President Donald Trump, to spread messaging that people would argue was dangerous in the time of the pandemic. Uh, when Trump famously said that UV light and disinfectants could cure COVID, Facebook decided to allow that on their platform because they created a carve out for Trump. And something just this week that I reported on for the New York Times was about how Facebook itself made a decision early on in the pandemic not to measure the amount of COVID misinformation that was on their platform, because it was going to require a great amount of resources It was possibly going to take them over a year to figure out the magnitude of it. And it just wasn't something that they decided to dedicate resources to. And so I think, you know, misinformation researchers, people who study this field would say, how does Facebook expect to know how big of a problem they have if they're not even studying it?
0: Right. And well, also, if they found the number, it would be potentially incriminating, uh, you know, in a way that would uh, further damage their PR, which is something that's very important to them. I'm, I'm learning right. from your book. Um, you know, we I spoke earlier, I was joking about the Death Star algorithm, but, you know, the algorithm is sort of the core of the thing, right? It's the, the thing that determines how to and get your data, calculate your data and what to do with your data. And so that when you're, what you're seeing in your own personal Facebook page is tailored to you in this kind of like ingenious um, way. But one of the things you guys have pointed out is that it begins to bias for emotive content, right? Mm-hmm. It begins to uh, bend you away from, you know, hard information, uh, sources of information. In fact, Towards things that are going to hit you in an emotional way, because that's the most effective thing. That's what people respond to. And look what the and you know, it's a metaphor. It's an analog to what Trump realized about taking over the Republican Party, which is that he could hit these emotional buttons and get people to respond. And of course, they used Facebook and Brad Parscale, their data guru used it very brilliantly to to kind of like let's put these two things together let's hit those emotional buttons right and and if there's a misinformation if there's hate speech in there then so be it but early on facebook recognized that this was happening right and what did they do what was the kind of you know how did that timeline happen it was when they started to recognize what was happening
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. So Facebook, as you know, they launch the newsfeed, which is the moment where they as a company decide that they're going to decide what people see rather than having people navigate around, you know, on their own and make a decision and say, well, I want to see what Shira Frankel is supposed to say. I want to see what Cecilia Kong is supposed to say. Facebook was going to make decisions for them. The minute they did that, they had to decide what to prioritize. And I think one of Mark Zuckerberg's really big insights into human psychology is that people wanted to see things that elicited an emotional response in them. It wasn't a chronological timeline. It wasn't, you know, something that was just purely, I think, you know you could argue maybe neutral. It was, no, let's inspire emotion in people. And I think everything that happens downwind at Facebook is a result of that initial decision. Because when you're inspiring emotion, whether that's, you know, joy or anger or sadness, you know, it's someone. Someone I think in our book equated it the it's a junk food. You know, you become reliant on that, and the content has to become increasingly sensational, increasingly emotional in order to keep you engaged. And I think as we've watched the last decade at Facebook, we've certainly seen a transition towards more sensational, more emotive content, and that sort of thing rising to the top of the newsfeed and doing very well there.
0: And as you guys uh, describe in the book, around the time that Trump uh, tried to put on the uh, Muslim ban, he began to say the kinds of uh, inflammatory things that he has known for saying. And there was some discussion right inside the company about whether we should allow this. Right. There was a lot of protest inside the company about, hey, we shouldn't be just spreading this willy nilly. But then ultimately yeah. it get defaults to Mark Zuckerberg to kind of have to delineate this on some level. And what does he decide to do?
1: So early on in the Trump campaign, Mark Zuckerberg has to make this decision, as you noted, on the Muslim content, the Muslim ban content. And his own employees are saying to him, I don't think we'd allow this if other people posted it. I don't think if the average user said they wanted to ban Muslims from the United States, we would allow that to be shared on our platform and you know mark zuckerberg makes a really interesting decision in that moment to allow that content to stay and i think one of the things that's fascinating for me as a reporter is that you want to imagine in that moment he had this like raging debate they called up academics they called up people who studied historical figures who studied you know what you know what the potential ramifications of all this but but no like it was ultimately you know a dozen people in a room none of them who really have much expertise in this who bandied around an idea and mark eventually goes well you know he's running for office and so maybe we should it's important for us to allow him to say what he wants to say because there's this idea that more speech is better, that by allowing him to say something, you're showing who he is to the American public and the American public will make a decision based on that. And I I think what our book shows is what that doesn't take into account is what we just talked about, which is the algorithms and how they really promote emotive content. So when you have a person saying that they wanna ban Muslims from the United States, whether you support that or don't support that, you're gonna have an emotional response. You're gonna uprank it. It's gonna be the first thing you see on the newsfeed. And that's, that's almost like giving someone free advertising, right? Like that is, you know, giving someone a huge public platform to raise an idea that will, I think people would agree, like if you're running for president, that's a lot of free airtime you just gave Donald Trump. So in making that decision, Mark Zuckerberg wasn't thinking, I would. I think people close to him would say, he wasn't thinking about the bigger picture at hand. What was going to happen if Donald Trump repeated that behavior again and again and did exactly what we saw him do, which is sort of become the king of Facebook and become the person on Facebook that people were talking about the most and amplifying the most? Because so many of the things he posted were not the kind of thing you would see the average Facebook user being allowed to say online. That's
0: right. Well, and on top of that, later on, we learn, or it's Facebook learns, early in 2016, that there's some Russian activity on Facebook that appears to be some kind of, you know, election interference or with motivated to disrupt the election or involve itself in the election. And what does Facebook, how does Facebook react to that?
1: So the Russian election interference, there's several chapters in the book about this. And I think what they show is a pattern of Facebook. Repeatedly being shown evidence that Russia was, in fact, using Facebook towards an end, whether it was to distribute emails that they'd hacked from the DNC or to try and seed ideas among Americans and Facebook executives repeatedly making the decision not to go public with what they knew, not to share what they knew with the broader American public. Now, I'll, I'll note that they do share quite a bit with the FBI, with American intelligence agencies, and we, we document how there's its internal debate where their team says, well, you know, if we've shared it with intelligence agencies, isn't that enough? Like, isn't it their place to go public and not ours? And then Other people within Facebook saying, well, no, absolutely not. We should tell people what we know. I mean, the American public is out there. You know, Donald Trump has just won the elections. They have no idea what Russia just did. I mean, why don't we go public? What's stopping us? And so you see this debate rage for months and months and months. And I think for for, even for me as a reporter, it was really surprising just how long Facebook sort of sat on this information before they ultimately, almost a year after the elections, decide to publish a report in September of 2017.
0: No, it's amazing. And uh, there are so many ironies here about, you know, the rights criticism of Facebook in the last year during the pandemic, considering the fact that during the decision making process of a lot of these important things around Trump and around the political elections of 16 and, and in this in the next election, as well as that Peter Thiel, right, he um, sort of libertarian right wing Silicon Valley investor was on the board and it was an influential voice in Mark Zuckerberg's you know, thinking. And what, you know, he would have been, and we maybe you can tell me more about this, but uh, his worldview jived with Marx in terms of, you know, let it all happen. Uh, you know, it's a Darwinian world, and it's not our job to uh, adjudicate misinformation or all this, like, hyper-emotional content that's driving people to do insane things like eventually the January sixth, um, you know, riot at the Capitol. So, Can you talk a little bit about um, his role?
1: Yeah. You know, Peter Thiel is an early investor um, in Facebook, but he's also really like a mentor figure to Mark. And so I think that his ideas, his kind of libertarian approach to life, um, but also to business, really affects Mark. Mark. You have to remember Mark Zuckerberg at this point is in his early 20s. and. As we show in one of the first chapters of the book, he's not the kind of person that's like reading widely about these things at the time. He loves computer science. He loves coding. He's very good at those things. He's very narrowly focused on the things he enjoys, but he's not thinking on a broader level of like what what free speech what free speech issues are at play here. Like what are the bad things that can happen on my platform, the good things that can happen on my platform. And so when Peter Thiel really suggests this really simple idea, like more speech is better to summarize it plainly, that's appealing. That's appealing for a young man who would rather not be making really difficult calls on individual pieces of content and what should be allowed and what should not.
0: Yeah. And I have been reporting recently, interviewing a lot of conservatives and GOP functionaries and characters that we're familiar with who complain up and down that the big tech companies are their problem now, right? They're the Mm -hmm. enemy because they're of censorship because of, uh, you know, um, they're being stifled and not being, I had one of them tell me, Oh, they're, they're censoring um, Christian posts, you know? And Mm. I was like, Hmm, I don't think so. But, you know, but if they (laughs) find like one, you know, kind of like semi, relevant case around that, that they make it a global issue and they turn it into, they weaponize it, obviously. And then it cascades through Facebook and then everybody on the conservative side who's in their bubble uh, believes it. So, and I guess that was the reason I was pointing out the irony is that all along they've been leaning right, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, um well, it's interesting, right? Because there's been allegations of conservative bias for years. Um, and again, we sort of show how Facebook is really aware of these accusations and really scared of them. And despite, you know, people within Facebook, Facebook has repeatedly kind of opened the doors, brought in conservatives, had them do their own survey, and tried to answer the question of, is there conservative bias? And you know, come up with no. Um, there still is this idea. I think what's more interesting for me as a reporter right now is is how we've seen even in the last year Facebook make concessions and 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 do things out of fear of upsetting conservatives. And yet they've watched this idea of conservative bias continue to grow. So, you know, one part of the book we have from the last year is how Facebook decides they're going to take down a QAnon network. They want to they want to take down these pages that are part of a vast right wing conspiracy. And their security team is told to wait and not take down the pages because they don't want to be seen as just taking down right wing pages. And they're basically told, like, hold on, we have to find some like somehow something equivalent on the left. And until we can find something that is perceived as left-wing to take down at the same time, we can't take down this right-wing thing. I just think that's like a classic example where like, the people on the security team were incredibly frustrated because they were like, wait, we have found this hugely damaging network that is telling Americans to believe conspiracies we know aren't true. Shouldn't we feel urgency to take it down now rather than waiting to create some kind of weird false equivalence?
0: And what is it that they're afraid of politically. What, is the, what are the powers? Obviously, there have been antitrust lawsuits. There are other kinds of you know, pressures coming on them. So they're obviously responding to these pressures or at least calculating them into their overall analysis. What are some of the pressures mm-hmm. that are causing them to be so uh, fearful of, of different political forces on the right or the left?
1: Well, you know they're scared of government regulation. They're scared of Republicans, specifically in Congress, and what they might do to Facebook. Um, you know, antitrust has been a huge topic recently. There's a question of whether Facebook has already violated antitrust laws and just not been punished for it. So I think those are all things that Facebook thinks about. And ultimately, it's funny because again, like given all these concerns they've had over years, we now know that, well, I know from Cecilia Kong because she has been an insider in Washington for so long that you know, tech regulation and specifically regulating Facebook is one of the few things that Republicans and Democrats actually agree on in Washington right now.
0: Well, and how would they regulate them? How do they want to regulate them? And what kind of effect would it have on Facebook? Were they regulated such that they are, you know, that scares them so much? Is it purely about, you know, making X billion rather than Y billion? What is it about?
1: Right. I mean, this is one of the first lines in the book is one of the things that Mark Zuckerberg fears most in the world is Facebook being broken up. That's what Facebook really worries about. I'll say this. I, I think that it will be incredibly difficult to break Facebook up, both because the laws are the laws that are currently on the books were written for big steel and big oil. These laws haven't been updated in a long time, and they're trying to apply them to Facebook in a way that they're going to find really unwieldy. And so anything that happens, we're looking, we're looking at a a long timeline here, but also, you know, Facebook has taken a lot of steps on a very technical level to make it difficult to break them up. They've recently merged all their messaging apps so that, you know, just on that fundamental level, like how do you, how do you split that apart once you've brought all those different apps together? You know, I, I think that Facebook knows that it has enough time in the years going forward. Like it will figure out ways to make breaking it apart as difficult as possible before Congress can figure out ways to create new laws that would potentially break it apart.
0: I mean, when you think about it, they have a building full of engineers who can create these algorithms. I'm sure they can game these politicians who we have gotten ample evidence are kind of slow and sometimes not too bright. And, you know, right. they they will easily game Washington. You know, I mean, that's to me, it's it's, um, it's almost like the horse is out of the barn here. And, um, you know, um, so now we learn that Donald Trump is, is suing because he feels like he's been censored or, uh, kicked off. Right. So is there any content to that lawsuit or is it just noise that he's making? Like, like he usually does.
1: I would say that most people don't see the Trump lawsuit as really being very serious, very likely to go anywhere. That particular lawsuit, um, I don't imagine, you know, from everyone I've spoken to, they just don't think that it has legs, really. Um, But, you know, that being said, it is interesting that he sued them. And it is, I think, for Trump, very much signaling that he is still in the picture. We have to remember that Trump ultimately is on a temporary ban of um from facebook you know he they've kicked this problem down the line for a couple years but according to the own their own timeline that they've set out here he's scheduled to come back on the platform just in time for a potential 2024 run if he wants to run again for office so i think they know that this is very much a problem that is is not going away anytime soon
0: And so is that a deadline for them in terms of, like, we need to maybe um, figure out a way to not let what happened before happen again? Is there any sense that they feel that responsibility or urgency? Are they doing anything?
1: I think some people within the company feel that. (laughs) I think others are kind of adopting a wait and see, like, oh, well, maybe he won't decide to run again, and so we'll avoid the problem. I think that's just another example of how Facebook shows again and again how it likes to be reactive rather than proactive. Like, They don't need to wait for Donald Trump to run for office again because there are currently incredibly important elections slated to be held in dozens of countries all over the world, including places like India, where Facebook is used even more, I would argue, in an even more sort of egregious way at times than it is here in the United States. You have in India a president, Modi, who has very aggressively used Facebook to consolidate his rule. And so rather than wait and figuring out what they want to do about specifically Donald Trump, like surely they should be thinking about leaders all over the world and governments all over the world and how those leaders should be using Facebook.
0: You know, uh, one of the things that your book makes clear right from the start is that Zuckerberg and Facebook are exclusively interested in increasing growth, increasing engagement at the expense of really answering all of these questions, right? They'll do things on the margins to keep People pacified, but they're really constantly focused on growth engagement. How many members do they have right now? How many people are on Facebook? Two billion or something? Is that roughly? Right. And so they just have the rest of the world to get on there, and then you know, Mark Zuckerberg is king of the world. But you know, that point of view is one I I can see, and and that scares me. and, And but what would be the alternative? You know, they're a giant, you know, money making company on the stock market, right? So if they weren't doing those things and they were reckoning with the power they have, which is undue power, right? What what would they do? What what would be some of the other decisions they could have made and might have made and might still make uh, if they didn't want to have the effect they're having on the world, which is largely, well, we can decide whether it's largely negative or positive, but there's been enormous negativity.
1: I think it's hard to say whether it's largely negative or positive, but as you said, I think there's been enough that's been negative for people to be worried about, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think people sitting in in this chair, if they were academics, if they were activists, would say that Facebook could have chosen to grow at a slower and more steady pace. They could have made the decision that there were certain markets that were too risky to enter, whether that was Myanmar, we mentioned that earlier, the Philippines, Sri Lanka. These are countries where Facebook has led to real-world violence, largely because they don't have – they didn't have institutions in place like a free press or like you know civil disobedience groups or or really places that could inform the public that could push back against some of the hate speech that was being spread on Facebook. So Myanmar is kind of like the worst case scenario where you push this new technology into a country where the algorithms are going to promote really emotive content, in this case, hate speech. And you don't have a responsible government that's tempering any of that. The government is actually doing quite the opposite. The government is inflaming it. The military is inflaming it. And you don't have the, the free press. You don't have any institutions that are kind of waving their hands. and They're going, no, 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 this isn't real. Those posts aren't real. They're photoshopped and they're manipulated images. And this is all riling our population up, Unnecessarily, it's just—it's you know—the the things that you say that you're seeing on Facebook are not real. Do not trust them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think Facebook could have made a decision early on to be like, "Hey, Myanmar, really complicated country. It's been under military rule for 30 years. Maybe we shouldn't like aggressively push into that country and basically become the internet for millions of people. Because as we document in the book, Facebook was the internet in Myanmar." Right. Um, And you could have decided once you were there and once people were telling you there was a problem to hire content moderators. You could have said, hey, we're a billion, you know, however many billion dollar company at that point in time. We're going to hire a thousand content moderators, right? This is a country with a hundred languages that are spoken. Let's make sure we have thousands, I should say, of content moderators instead of one person, one person that spoke Burmese. So I think those are all moments in time where Facebook could have been a lot more responsible about its growth. Now, I will just play devil's advocate for a moment here, which is to say that Facebook's response might be, well, if we didn't grow as fast as we did, some other country would have beat us to it. It would have been China. It would have been, you know, something else. Some other social media company would have taken hold and that could have been even worse. And that is an argument that they're going to make to regulators and to Congress. They're going to say, if it's not us, it's someone else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that 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 argument, it's a difficult one because, it leaves, you know, obviously to members of Congress and, we you know, to President Trump, it's an argument that worked. Like they agreed. They said, yes, well, we absolutely don't want a Chinese company taking hold in, you know, whatever part of the world. We'd rather it be Facebook. But I think it also is an argument that very conveniently lets them continue their growth mentality. You know, it conti- lets them continue on their current trajectory without maybe finding that middle ground of like, you know what, we actually just became a trillion dollar company we can grow as fast as we want and be responsible about it. If we were to put the same kind of resources behind adequately moderating content, being really proactive and looking for problems as we do in growing in new markets, then we could do what we're doing, but in a much more responsible way.
0: It's interesting because it's you know this argument, the counter argument that they might make. It's like, you know, well, capitalism means that our company is just like a weather pattern that we can't control, right? It's just like, well, You know, if it wasn't us, it would have been someone else. So this was an inevitable thing that was going to happen. Like it was going to rain on Thursday. And so we just happened to want to get there first, right? So they don't want to take responsibility for the cascade of things that are happening as a result of their company. Yeah. And, uh, you know, tell me a minute for a minute just to bring it home for a second about Facebook's involvement with the January 6th events. You know, this week we saw people testifying, really emotional testimony. I just want to say from my own point of view, that that testimony was incredibly powerful. And I hope that people will go and read the articles, look at the videos and ne- not forget what happened there. Because in fact, on Facebook and other places like it, it's already being smudged and softened. And it's, it's in fact, Facebook is where they're doing it, um, you know, to make it, make us forget or think, look back on it in a different way. But how was Facebook itself involved in Some of the events that happened there, what did you find in your reporting?
1: It was interesting because, you know, January 6th, I think people probably remember Sheryl Sandberg famously gave an interview right after that where she said that what happened in the events leading up to January 6th largely happened on other platforms. And I think that any reporter who had been studying the events of the months leading up to January 6th immediately, I think we immediately recoiled a little bit at that statement because it just didn't ring true with what we were seeing, which was that. Even before the November elections, Donald Trump and people close to him were seeding this idea on Facebook that the election was going to be stolen. And then you have the day after the election, a group called Stop the Steal Launch, which goes incredibly viral. It's one of the fastest growing groups in Facebook's history. And they are dedicated really to one thing, to promoting this idea that the election was stolen from Donald Trump and they get millions of people to follow their cause. I mean, their groups are just exploding and, and there's, there's hundreds of them, you know, Facebook, I should know they take down some of these groups, but not others. And so you let this group of people not only congregate on Facebook, but get really kind of like, you know. Get each other heated, get each other fired up over this idea, and over the course of that, you know, the next two and a half months, they start to fixate on certain dates and times, saying, "Well, this lawsuit is going to mean that Trump is back in office, and that lawsuit, this recount is going to show that you know he really won in whatever state." And every time that fails to happen, they actually double down more on this idea that that Trump should have won and did in fact win. Until you get to January sixth, and at that point, you have journalists, including myself, emailing Facebook. With screen grabs of, of Facebook groups that show people openly posting pictures of guns, of, of you know talking about how they're going to travel to Washington with weapons in the trunk of their cars, and so for Facebook to sit there and say it was largely planned on other platforms, like maybe they used some other messaging apps to coordinate, you know, how they were going to arrive, what hotel they were going to stay in. But there is no doubt, I think, in the minds of any misinformation, disinformation reporter, that the angering of the average American, that sentiment that they needed to come to Washington to defend Donald Trump, that very much was fermented on Facebook. Yeah.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong here, but, you know, I repeatedly read articles during the election and after that, you know, if you – on a day-to-day basis, the highest-ranking news stories on Facebook were conservative-leaning uh, items, you know, Dan Bongino, mm-hmm. you know, you name it. Like people, Usually from Trump. Usually right. from Dan Trump. Right, Dan
1: Bongino, mm-hmm. Dan Shapiro. I mean I I was one of those reporters. I, I wrote countless articles about how a very small group of people who were pretty much proxies for former President Donald Trump were the highest-ranking stories on Facebook, and they were usually about
0: election fraud. And so, you know – didn't Facebook begin to append news items with, you know, things about the election in order to kind of combat this? I kept seeing them every time I'd even post a Times article about the election. There'd be a little ba-doop, you know, a little thing that pops up. Um, is that adequate? Does that work? Is it meaningful?
1: Well, you know, I think Facebook, again, they say, well, we labeled the post. That's what you're talking about is this, yeah, this idea of a label. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Um the problem with those labels is that they're not very clear. What the labels usually said is for accurate information about the election, please visit our election center. And then it would link out to Facebook's little election center, which then pretty much linked out to like outside sources of information about where to vote and how voting was secure, etc. They didn't say this post is false. Like, you know, you could post something on Facebook saying the election was stolen from Trump. Dead people voted along with cats and dogs, which all, the New York Times has repeatedly debunked that, just to be very clear. Yeah. And the thing underneath it would say, please visit our voting center. Please inform, you know, like that's not the same as telling people that, and and and. Just to back, They did eventually start to try and edit some of those labels to say things like, this is misleading or da-da-da-da-da, mm-hmm. but they're so careful about the language because right. of something you mentioned earlier, this idea of conservative bias, angering conservatives. They have to be so careful about their language that they're still not really clearly messaging to people like, hey, this is just not accurate. Like, this has been debunked. Fact checkers have found this to be false. Do not believe this information because – you know, Every authority we have is telling us that, in fact, Donald Trump did not
0: win the election. So listen, that's Trump. That's the right wing. We know about them. On the other hand, as we talked about at the top of this conversation, Biden out there saying Facebook's killing people, right? Mm-hmm. So they're getting it coming and going, and they can't, they're trying to walk this fine line where they don't end up, you know, angering anybody. And yet- continuing to anger everybody <laughs> um right.
1: well and misinformation by the way i know i've talked about the right a lot but like you know the anti-vaccine misinformation that biden is highlighting that's a problem on the left and the right
0: absolutely um have you ever interviewed mark zuckerberg
1: i have not mark has never agreed to be interviewed by me
0: i mean if you could get him in a room and ask him a question i'm sure you've thought mm-hmm. about this you know yeah. What are you dying to ask him just directly? And, you know, let's just say you could get some truth serum in him. Um, what do you want to know?
1: I want to know that if I would ask him if you could fire yourself for any one mistake you made, which mistake would you choose? Mm. And I would. Ask it that way because, you know, there have been reporters, Kara Swisher in the past has asked him, would you fire yourself? And he said, no. And I think that that answer, you know, he has to give it because he's put himself in a position where no one can fire him. He has decided to be the ultimate authority. And I would want to corner him a little bit more and say, no, 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 you're getting fired. You've made a lot of mistakes. You've made some huge mistakes at this company. Which mistake do you actually think is the biggest?
0: Because you think it would illuminate where and if... He has any ethical or moral center?
1: I think for me, it would illuminate whether he is thinking on a grand enough scale of the systemic problems in facebook or whether he still thinks it's one-off mistakes like i want to know does he think that his singular mistake was trump was allowing trump to to write that muslim ban post and that led him down a slippery slope of a carve out for does he think or does he think on a bigger level like oh i've created a platform that thrives on emotive speak like where how big does mark's thinking go of what he would want to reimagine about facebook
0: But as you point out in there, if you look at his sort of evolution as a young man at, at Harvard and his discovery, uh, you know, partly through meeting Cheryl's hiring Cheryl Sandberg that, you know, the growth potential and the money to be made and the, you know, and of course, as soon as you hit that inflection point, you know, you are at the mercy of this capitalistic weather we were talking about <laughs> earlier, um, you know, but he's always been kind of like a emotional illiterate right i mean there's something about him that is like feels he's analytical but kind of has some essential disconnect from the effect that he has on the world
1: i'm not sure because you know we've spoken to a lot of people that are close to him that say in small meetings with people that he's close to he can be very emotive and he can be a fairly you know a good communicator and reasonable and, you know, and thoughtful about his, um, his decision-making. I think he is not, I think he's awkward on public stages. And I think that's why the public interpretation of him is one of an awkward individual. I don't think he's comfortable to this day with public speaking. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I I understand. I I have a similar, I'm not particularly comfortable with public speaking, so I can kind of understand that awkwardness, but I do think that he feels badly about some of the things Facebook has done. I I do believe that him and and Sheryl Sandberg feel badly about Myanmar, for instance.
0: Well, they would have to. (laughs) I mean, they're talking about thousands of people, you know.
1: (laughs) Yes, you would hope so, right? But I can think of other leaders of companies where I've been told, well, no, that individual does not have that empathy, right? I I actually Mm -hmm. think Mark and Sheryl care, but there's a difference between caring and actually changing your actions. Yeah. And I think it's hard. And I think, um, you know, when you have become a billionaire off of creating a technology, it's very hard to step back and say, well, was my premise wrong? Was the premise that the world should be open and connected, not the correct premise?
0: And do you think that's the premise of his creation? But is the his ultimate motivation you suggest in the book is power?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, again, this just goes to people that are close to him, but they think that, that Mark Zuckerberg thinks very much in historical terms. You know, we know he's a student of history, especially of the Roman Empire, and then he wants to be remembered, and he thinks he will be. He thinks that, you know, history will remember him as an incredibly powerful individual who introduced the world's first sort of global social network. And I think that that's what matters to him. It's not, he is not motivated by money. I mean, every person we spoke to agreed that Mark Zuckerberg is not motivated by money, it's something bigger than that. It's power. And it's funny because uh, I can't remember who someone a couple weeks ago was asking me about, Oh, well then is he going to run for office. If he's so obsessed with power, like surely there's some truth to the rumors that he'd run for president. And I had to laugh because I was like, look, he, between the three apps that he currently controls, he, he, he is direct influence in the lives of over 3 billion people and nobody can vote him out. No one can force him to do anything. Would you give up influence of the lives over 3 billion people to run for president of the United States. (laughs) Like I just, how could you possibly think that that would be attractive to someone like him?
0: Well, that's exactly it. He's way more powerful uh, in in many ways than a mere politician in one country. Right. Um, But how is he wielded it? And does he know how to wield it? Right. That's the real question is like, could he take this power and, do something, you know, miraculous uh, with it and and, and positive, right? Um, but he continues to use it or let it operate um, as if it's just part of the jungle, <laughs> you know.
1: Right. I mean, look, we, we don't know. We don't know what he'll end up doing. Like, it might very well be that he um, he decides to do something like what Bill Gates does and eventually leave Facebook for the for the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation. He, he I could see him doing something like that. But I, I don't think he'll be doing it anytime soon. I think he's going to be at Facebook for, for, you know, some years to
0: come. Well, listen, this has been a fascinating conversation, an incredible book, An Ugly Truth, Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination. And when we say domination, seems like we mean the entire globe. <laughs> um, Shira, frankly, wrote this with uh, Cecilia Kong. Uh, both of you are reporters at The New York Times. You've done an incredible work here. And um, I thank you for coming on Inside the Hive this week.
1: Thank you so much for having us on, having me on. Sorry, I'm so used to being with <laughs> Cecilia.
0: <laughs> That's okay. I'm so used to being with Emily Jane Fox, who is currently on uh, maternity leave. And if she's listening <laughs> to this, hello, Emily, and hello to your beautiful baby, JR. And um, to you listeners out there, uh, come back next week. She'll be here giving us an update on uh, the frontiers of motherhood. And uh, we'll be talking about current events and whatever else. Um, Thanks again, Shira. Thank you. That's our podcast this week. I'd like to thank Shira Frankel for coming on the show. What a book. Go pick it up. Thanks to our producer, Brett Fuchs. Thanks to the people at Cadence 13 who helped make this happen. Thanks to our sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. If you liked what you heard, if you want more conversations like this, hit subscribe. Come back to us every week. Find out what it's all about. It's going to get hotter and hotter, I promise. Come back next week.